Yes, in your ears we've taken a oh yes, in your ears we've taken a oh yes, in your ears we've taken a oh, taken a oh, taken a oh in your ears. Okay, say hello. Here we are again for episode six of years in your ears say hello owen how are you i'm doing wonderfully how are you doing i'm good yeah i'm I'm, I'm not too bad you've had quite a momentous few months uh i have i got married you did yeah do you want to tell us a bit about that well you were there as well i was there yeah (laughs) i played quite a key role not in i wasn't we didn't get married to each other well i did marry you actually and Jazz, yes. uh, who was our guest in my previous episode. That is true. Yeah. But no, it was a wonderful day. It was up a hill. We had a lovely view. Everyone seemed to have a marvellous time, which is the main thing. And uh, people were moved. Some people laughed. Some people cried. Some people did a hideous mixture of the two. But it was just, I'm just glad that they were there. It was a really lovely, special day. And I was really touched that you asked me to be your celebrant. But yeah, it was, it was a lovely day, just being out in the middle of Somerset. Um, you know, surrounded by the fields and the cows. And... The cows were causing some consternation, actually. People who were staying overnight were kept up by the cows. They didn't bother me being of rural stock, I suppose. But there was a cow that woke me up because it sounded like a mobile phone buzzing. And it went, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> for a good couple of minutes. I remember, yeah, because there was quite a few cows down by the safari tent, which was where we were staying, along yes. with the rest of the Green Squad. And I remember at one point I stood on the balcony of the safari tent. It was quite a, it was quite a big structure of it, if you're wondering why a tent had a balcony. Yeah, well, the cows were kind of gathered by, around the nearby fence, and I mooed at them. And quite a few of them kind of looked at me. And then I like mooed again. And then they looked up again. And then one of them kind of mooed, but with like a kind of like tone of annoyance in her mood. Do you think you were carrying out some sort of ceremony for the cows? Had you activated some kind of celebrant power and you were acting as it for all of the organic life in the area? Well, the clues in the name, I'm a humanist celebrant. I'm not one of these bovine celebrants that you're kind of getting mad. Oh, it's gone mad, hasn't it? It's a bubble industry. Shall we introduce the guest? Yeah, it's. Uh, we're joined today by the lovely London comedian, Denzian of the London comedy circuit, the inimitable... Leslie Gold. Wow, what an introduction. Thank you, Dick. Thank you. It's uh, lovely to be here. Yeah, it's lovely. I'm really glad you could join us. You know, one of my kind of closest friends in comedy. Uh, we met each other a few years ago now, didn't we? Um, what was it? Funny Feckers. Funny Feckers. Yeah. I think that was like my seventh gig and I had a terrible gig. I died on my ass and I came off stage and Dick was very kind to me me and that was the the big takeaway of the evening for me oh yeah and then through lockdown us two and Vic Melody did online gigs together the gig idea gigs which was a good fun we had some uh, we had some big names we had Jen Ives television's Jen Ives (laughs) TV's Jen Ives absolutely and now you're making mad moves in the comedy scene, Leslie, with your night that you've started out? I don't know if it's mad moves. It's really fun and people seem to enjoy it. And that's the key thing. So while we were doing the gig idea as an online gig, I was also doing another online gig. I wasn't cheating on you guys because you knew about it and it was all good. But I started a gig called Sofa So Funny. There were reasons for the name. I know it's a ridiculous name, but people remember it. So we started this online gig on Zoom, and then we moved it to the real world last September. In fact, this week, last year. And now we're twice a month. We've moved to Liverpool Street to the wonderful Flying Horse, and we've got a mixed experience lineup. Um, We've got pro and semi-pro comedians. Dick, you've been on the show a number of times and you're always welcome back. And we've also got spots for new acts, like brand new acts, trying comedy for the first time. 
and it seems to have really struck a nerve with people. They seem to like it, which is great. Yeah, it's always a really fun night to perform at. I really like the fact how it is such a kind of like mixed bill, you know, but it all feels like inclusive and no one, it, it doesn't, it never feels like anyone's out of their depth. Yeah, I've always enjoyed it. I mean, last time I performed there, you had Matt Richardson, who I... It's amazing, isn't he? He's such a, a consummate professional. I feel like I can always learn from from every comedian that we have on, from the pros and the newbies and everyone in between. And it's, it's an absolute joy. I love it so much. And I get to emcee it, which is just a pleasure. So, Leslie, do you want to tell us about the year that you've chosen? Yes, you've brought it in on a trolley. It's covered by a cloche. A cloche. <laughs> oh, is that the thing that... The big silver the, thing. Big silver the word thing, I learned from right, MasterChef. Okay. Yeah, previously known mostly from episodes of Scooby-Doo, I think. The Scooby-Doo hood, they call it. <laughs> Yeah, that thing. Um, Yeah, the year I chose is uh, a year that a lot of my friends in my life now probably weren't even born then, but I chose 1989. Oh, well, Owen and I were both definitely alive there. Very much alive. Very, very tiny. Wow, yeah. Now, why have you chosen this year? Does it mean something in particular for you? Yeah, it was a really big year in my life. I was 17 for most of that year, and that's the year I moved out of my parents' house and started my life as me on my own, trying to figure out what I was doing with my life. Still on that journey, but it was a real moment for me because it was the first time I had any real autonomy. That's good. Mm. When you moved out of your parents' house, where where did you move to? I moved into uni, into the dorms. I think a lot of people did that in the States where I'm from. Um, I think it's maybe more common to, to move into dorms, and I think it's quite a different experience than here. But the difference for me was when I moved into the dorms, I moved out of my mom's house. I took everything I owned, and I never went back except to visit. And I think that was quite different. And also, I was a bit young for compared to most of my classmates. I was a few months younger than everybody. Most of my classmates were like 18, some were 19. When they were starting uni, I was 17. And I just never looked back. I literally took everything I owned and I was like, bye. Wow. <laughs> that must be huge. I mean, you what you said, you were 17. Yeah. Because I think like certainly when I went to uni, I was I was 20 because I'd I'd gone to college twice, basically. Okay. Because because I'm so talented <laughs> that I just was too good for one college. Amazing. I wouldn't even take a grade from the first one. I'm like, I don't want it. <laughs> I don't want it. Haven't done any work. But what I'm saying is that felt enormous at 20. But at 17, it must have been mind-blowing. It was, but it also felt like it had been a long time coming. Without going into too much detail, I had quite a difficult childhood. Not as bad as some, don't get me wrong, but not easy. And my mom and I had a really difficult relationship. I spent the last three or four years living in my mom's house. So from the age of about 13 to the time I left, literally counting the days until I could go. By the time August 1989 came in, I moved into the dorms. I was like, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. You like shot out like a champagne cup. Yeah, I was I was in my element. It was interesting because a lot of a lot of my classmates at uni were experiencing autonomy for the first time as well but I think they'd had quite a different teenagerhood than me and a lot Mm. of them were there to party and a lot of them came a cropper within the first few months whereas I was there to start my life and go to school and learn and I had done all the partying I had done a lot of things I shouldn't have done a lot earlier on and so I was like yeah I'll go to a party I'll have a drink but I have a test in the morning so I'm going to go back and do that now. So I felt like I was on a different journey than a lot of the people my age. Did you move far? Not really, no. I moved a 20-minute drive away, but then my mom and my stepdad moved across the country. And the country in question was America. So they moved 2,500 miles away wow. two months after I moved out. That's very much a full stop then on, <laughs> on a period of time, isn't it? <laughs> no wonder that feels like such a big break as a year. It really was just an amazing year for me. Dick, were you doing anything in 1989 of no? Uh, I mean, I was being just a regular kind of two-year-old, you know, <laughs> just... So you weren't going to the fraternity parties and that? <laughs> no, I wasn't. I don't think I was in your dorms um, <laughs> at the time. No, I was... I like walking down a corridor going, that's John, that's a two-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have uh, I would have been on the Isle of Wight at the time. And I, do, I think one of my earliest memories is definitely 
of um, being pushed along in a pram along a road in Cowes, uh, which is a town on the island. And that memory may be from 1989, but I, I've got absolutely no way to verify that. How about yeah. you, Owen? Where were you in 1989? Well, we actually had a large family trip to the Isle of Wight that year. Oh, wow. Notably. Yeah, so I don't know if there was like a crossover, like one buggy passes another and we like look like sliding (laughs) doors. Uh, Also, this is from my mother. Apparently, I did start walking that year. Very late to walk. My dad bought a Robin Reliant. These are the highlights of the year. Those are the little three-tire things, (laughs) The The attraction was you had to pay, you could pay less road tax and you could drive them if you had half a license. (laughs) I have a very strong memory of standing in the boat. How long did he have that for? Well, I have a memory of it from the mid-90s, so he must have had it for a while. Was it yellow? No, you're thinking of Only Fools and Horses. I'm thinking of Only Fools and Horses. When I first moved to this country and saw one of those cars, I thought somebody was, like, I thought the circus was in town. I was like, (laughs) what are you, like, that's not, how, how do you not flip that over all the time? Oh, they did. (laughs) They did flip over. That's why you only had to pay half the uh, road tax on them. So, Leslie, what is your first kind of gem that you've retrieved from the mine that is 1989? Okay, so the big thing that happened in 1989 was the whole world changed and the Berlin Wall came down. Even at the time, it felt like we are living in history and we're seeing history unfold before us right now. Mm. I mean, I can't remember the last time a historic event happened where it kind of felt like, oh, this is a good thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. I feel like the fall of the Berlin Wall must have been, like, broadly, everyone at the time felt positive about it. Yeah. I have something of that from my research. There is one person who wasn't up for it falling down. Was it Vladimir Putin? It was Margaret Thatcher. She apparently urged Gorbachev personally to stop it and said, we do not want a united Germany because they were afraid of the post-war consensus changing. It was not just her, it was the um, president of France as well. They were both a bit like, it's been this way since the 40s, we don't want it changing. I'd like to say I'm surprised, but anyone who knows me won't be surprised to hear that I am not a fan of Margaret Thatcher, who was basically the female equivalent of Ronald Reagan, who is a horrible, horrible, nasty... Uh, are we cursing on this podcast, by the way? Yeah, we, yeah, we yeah, can yeah, curse. Yeah. Think of the worst word you could think of, and that is what I would apply to Ronald Reagan. He's an absolute cunt. I think he he, he would have been president in 1989, wouldn't he? Oh, would it have been George Bush Sr.? Bush Sr. was elected president yeah. in November 88 and then became president in January 89. Bush Sr., at the time, we thought was going to be the worst, because he was worse than Reagan, which was terrible and then bush senior came in and he was awful so yeah it was it was a bad bad time and and if you think about it let's see 1989 there was war in eastern europe just coming to an end but at the start of the year it was quite disruptive and uh there's economic crisis and trickle down economics basically it's now I guess at least it was a novelty then. Do you remember where <laughs> you were when the Berlin Wall came down? Because it happened quite suddenly. It did happen it? suddenly. I was in front of a television. Um, <laughs> I remember watching it and being like, wow, this is kind of, I never thought it would happen kind of thing. It must be amazing. Yeah, like like yeah. seeing it happen must be incredible. I have, if you'll allow me, I did, I did a bit of research about it because I realised like, it's a kind of iconic moment, but I didn't really know a lot of the... I knew the geopolitical context, but I didn't know the individual context for what happened. And I was astounded to find that it was actually an accident that caused it. Was it? Tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, the borders between... The Iron Curtain, rather, hmm. was becoming more and more porous, and people were crossing backward and forward all the time. The beleaguered government in East Germany were powerless to stop it, and so they were rushing to come up with legislation to kind of go well we're kind of meaning for this to happen anyway and they had a press conference and the the man was the spokesperson Gunter Chabosky so he misread a hurried note he'd been given 
just before the press conference, which laid out a rule that would say, basically, the borders, you can come and go as you want. But it was a law that they may pass at some point. But he misread it thinking, oh, well, I guess, uh, yeah, it just says that you can go out. And uh, a man from Italy who is, his whole wiki page is just, this is the guy that caused the Berlin Wall. He was like, (laughs) sorry, did you say they could just go now? And the guy went, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, I'm reading the note. And he like read out the note and went, I guess <laughs> oh it's, it's that. <laughs> it spread like wildfire after that. Loads of people just showed up at the gates that evening. And um, the guards were a bit like, there's too many people to kill or stop. Yeah. So they just let them through. My memory of it is not the paperwork that came before. My memory of it is watching these people climb this wall and take at it with pickaxes mm. and their bare mm. hands and start dismantling it. Yeah. And it was, it was amazing because it was the only world I'd ever known had the East and the West at, you know, loggerheads and they were never going to come together and it was never mm. going to be peace. And I grew up fully expecting a nuclear war mm. to happen. Like genuinely. Did, did it that. shape your worldview yeah. as a 17 year old at the time? Yeah, absolutely. I remember being a kid and thinking, and this is bleak, but like I said, I had a difficult time. I remember thinking, that if I saw my 21st birthday, that would be lucky because I didn't have any realistic expectation of seeing myself into adulthood. That's how bleak. Because, because of the threat of nuclear war. That was a big part of it. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it was my personal history was difficult, but also I lived in this world where we genuinely had an expectation that it was going to be a, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, but nobody was going to blink. Mm. Wow. You know, did you do you guys know about the movie The Day After Tomorrow? Yeah. yeah. That felt like nonfiction. <laughs> <laughs> that felt like how it was actually going to play out. Mm. You guys grew up not having that like figurative cloud over your heads. And I can't mm. really conceive of that because the threat was always there. People often look back and describe the 90s as being a more optimistic kind of decade as someone who at least in the west as someone who lived through it would you would you say that was accurate yeah i think so i think to some extent for the first couple years after the berlin wall fell it felt like "Mm, it's just going to backslide like this is a temporary hiatus and something's going to happen but the longer it went without the world self-imploding the more it felt like oh hey maybe we're okay And then, of Mm. course, around like, I guess it was like 97 or 98, people started talking about the Y2K bug and how everything was going to end. Yeah, Yeah, I have a memory of that. Yeah, yeah. I even remember there were adverts on TV that were like, get Y2K safe. Yeah. And they would have like a little bug, like a digital bug. The thing is, anybody who understood anything about computers knew that there was not a, it was not a viable threat. It Mm. wasn't, it was like, Genuinely no big deal. It was a bug, it could be fake. But the worry about it was palpable for a while, at least in America. I don't know what it's like. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, I, I do remember there was literally on the Millennium, because I was watching TV, much like yourself, I was watching TV whilst the Millennium <laughs> came into being, because I wasn't old enough to go out and drink. Oh, no, I was partying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was literally like a man looking concerned, like waiting you know, like there was like a thing on the wall and he was like, it might happen. It might happen. And there was like, it hasn't happened. <laughs> it hasn't happened. I remember the fear around it. I don't I don't remember how seriously I took the fear around it. Well, you but... would have been a little kid at the time. Yeah. Should we uh, move on to uh, your pick from 1989? Yes, absolutely. I have picked A Grand Day Out. Now, this is the stop motion animation by Ardman. Studios. It's the debut of Wallace and Gromit, perennial British animated characters. I live in Bristol now, and it's a very Bristol production. It was made in the city, and uh, it premiered actually in the art gallery down the road from where I live, which is really nice. Wow. In 1989, my earliest memory of seeing it was on a VHS my dad had taped off the TV. <laughs> it was part of like an animation showcase. It's the beginning of probably one of the only convincing animated potted industries in the UK. Ardman Studios are still going. They're still making films and TV. Uh, they're still in Bristol. It's an also amazing film. It's, uh, it took eight years to make by Nick Park, who was the director, animator, creator of it. He started it as a student and then just kept making it, basically. <laughs> he paid the voice of Wallace, Peter Salis, £50. And 
Peter Salas was so surprised that it actually got finished that he swore down the phone at uh, Nick Park. <laughs> he was like, bloody hell. Well, I can't do the accent. He was like, <laughs> fucking bloody hell, So mate. did Peter Salas, did he go on to subsequently voice Wallace? Yeah, he voiced it right up until um, he died. I think he's Wallace in Curse of the Were-Rabbit, for sure. Apparently Nick Park wanted to be the voice of Gromit, but it didn't work out, which I'm kind of grateful for. So that was the first, like, Wallace and Gromit feature. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. so weird to think it was from 1989. Like, it just feels so long ago. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think of Wallace and Gromit as being something from the 90s. Yeah. But I guess that's the thing, like, with decades, it's like, you know, we all just run into each other, obviously. That is such as the nature of time. <laughs> I didn't become aware of Wallace and Gromit at all until, um, or Hardman, until Chicken Run came out. Because I don't, mm. I think that might have been when it was either when it crossed my awareness or just when it hit in the states. Because I was still in the states until two thousand three. I think that's the big movie they made. Before that, they were just making these shorts of Wallace and Cromit. They kept making them throughout the nineties, so they have this very like I'd say almost like festive quality. I don't whether they were on at Christmas or not. I don't know, but they were. Yeah, you tend to associate them with Christmas. They're kind of like comfort TV, and they speak of this, you know, very British like man pottering in a shed invents amazing things has a trustworthy dog <laughs> who also invents things i think it's like the northern accents as well as yeah. the kind of like theme tune played in like with like brass instruments there's something very like quintessentially like comfortingly english about yeah it. and even though it was made in bristol nick park i think is from lancashire so he's bringing that from the north it is an affectation yeah but it's you know it comes from an actual northern man Uh, Bristol hasn't appropriated the North (laughs) All this time I thought he was making fun of Northerners But he was one, is one Yeah, and I think he wanted Peter Salas to do a Lancastrian accent But he couldn't do it (laughs) But it's it's such an integral part of Bristol You, You know, they had these grommet sculptures all around the city Where different artists would take them and paint them up And then they got auctioned off and they made a huge amount of money for local charities so it's a it's yeah it's a it's kind of part of the landscape of the city i suppose and it all started there was the um animation that they used in like the earliest films so like a grand day out was that the same basically as what they used in chicken run uh, no obviously they'd improve it i think it, i think the initial film was all plasticine and what i'd read is that he literally called up the stockists and bought all of the plasticine so, but I think the later ones, it's going to be more like, I think they use like, there's like a skeleton of wire and then they build stuff over it and there's interchangeable mouths. Right. It's a lot more about replacing parts than it is like sculpting because obviously you see the fingerprints and everything. Oh, very interesting. That's quite cool. It's one of those things as a foreigner to these shores, I think Hardman stuff is, like you say, Dick, quintessentially English, but it's really lovely and gentle without being mm. kind of goody two-shoes, if that makes sense. Yeah, without being sickly. Yeah, and it's got a kind of smartness to it as well. A lot of it's built on kind of filmic references. And I think that's the signature kind of Ardman style that they carry on in things like Shaun the Sheep and that is, you know, they it, you think it's going one way, but then there's a smart reference in there. But yes, shall we move on to your second thing, Leslie? Yeah. Okay. Talking of culture. Yeah. Defining culture. Very, very high culture, this. Very artistically worthy culture. And my choice is the essential 1989 album by Nine Snails called Pretty Hate Machine, which is arguably one of the best start to finish albums ever created. In the history of music, that's a bold statement. It I is. Was say, I was say what, 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 what? Because I, I've never really listened to Nine Inch Nails. So, what in particular do you think makes that album so brilliant? It's really hard to put my finger on it, but the whole album is entirely listenable in a way that you can listen to it over and over again and not get tired of it. I can, and I think maybe. Eight of the ten tracks, if I hear any one of them at any time, I feel compelled to dance. That's the sign of a good album. Like, compelled. And I I use that word deliberately because I would struggle not to dance. If the song Sin came on anywhere, it could be played at a funeral, (laughs) and I would struggle not to get up and dance. Mm. I feel like this is a challenge. I feel like we could, <laughs> we could spring it on you out of a phone and you just suddenly start I would genuinely, you would see my knees 
twitching. You'd see me go, <laughs> I spent most of the next 10 years dancing to, to Nine Snails and music like that. Did you encounter it at the time? I would have encountered Pretty Hate sort of right the tail end of 89, start of 90. Because mm-hmm. I was in my freshman year in uni, I was surrounded by music-y types. Like, I hung out with, at my university, a bunch of my friends were DJs on the university radio station. Nice. So I would spend many an evening in the, <laughs> in the shitty little radio station at our school, like going and pulling vinyl, because we had actual vinyl. That is how old I am, my friends. <laughs> At the time, I was listening to, I grew up on like classic rock and some metal, and like I was a big fan of Ozzy Osbourne and all of this. And like Nine Snails and industrial music was a revelation to me because it took all the emotion that you get in, in all the music I grew up with in classic rock and metal, and it put it into a much more dynamic form. That goes with a quote that I managed to pull that I thought was really good. The editor of All Music, the website, said, Reznor gave industrial music a human voice at last, a point of connection. Yeah. And I thought that was like industrial music beforehand had been the preserve of the avant-garde, yeah. trying to be as abrasive as possible. And Trent Reznor's, you know, he's made it all about him, basically, and his worries and his desire. I mean, that whole album is about him being broken up with, essentially. Mm. <laughs> and I know Nine Nails is not for everybody, and that's fair. Music is a very personal thing, and far be it for me to tell anyone what to listen to. But I think if anyone, anyone with a genuine appreciation for music sat down and really listened to mm. that album, whatever their musical taste, I think they'd find something to connect with. Mm. Because there's such a visceral and beautifully imagined and beautifully told story. And it doesn't have, I mean, it is all about Trent Reznor's heartbreak, but it doesn't have to be about him. It's so relatable. Mm. Everybody has felt the feelings he conveys in that album. And the music is pumping. It's so good. (laughs) And so, yeah, so I I think it's got everything. And the, the fact that he's, essentially a one-man band he did the whole album like when he tours he's got musicians that work with him and i've seen him live half a dozen times he's amazing but to to listen to this tour de force and know there's one guy behind it it's kind of amazing i'd written down that Reznor was working as a handyman at the record studios and he would (laughs) and he would go in and record on his downtime the album in bits over months so I think, yeah, he just was, it was a full labor of love, wasn't it? It really was. And I, th- I remember at the time, you know, when you're like in your early 20s and you have really earnest conversations about music. Yes. And I remember at the time, a few years after this, it was when Manson, Marilyn Manson came into, into the zeitgeist and there were conversations. And the argument I made at the time, and I still believe this to be true, is that Trent Reznor is an artist. He would have created that album regardless of what circumstances conspired to to keep him from creating it Mm. and whether it ever made a penny, whether anyone else ever listened to it, he would have felt the need to make that album. Yeah. Whereas Marilyn Manson, if his fan base disappeared tomorrow, he would stop producing music because I don't think, and this is my opinion, I don't think he feels it on an authentic level. I I think arguably his fan base have disappeared overnight. Well, yeah, I mean... There's only so many people you can screw over before people turn against you. Bringing up Manson, I suppose that shows the immediate legacy. And in less than 10 years after that album came out, Industrial became, obviously with him doing things with Bowie as well. Yeah. It becomes very much the sound of the mid to late, like 90s for metal. Every every metal band goes, even Alice Cooper, they get a little bit industrial just to go, oh, well, it's the flavour of the month. But it shows how influential it must have been. I mean, do you think there's a reason why it came about specifically at that time? Like, was there any relation to, you know, like house music? Just when I think of industrial metal, I do think of heavy kind of like pounding beats. I don't know. I never really listened to house music much. And one thing that I've noticed moving from the States to the UK is that in the States, you can be much more selective about what you listen to. Because you'll have like whole radio stations that are dedicated to particular genres of music. Mm. So like, for instance, I never had to listen to the Spice Girls. Now, I know that's going to be a statement that's going to upset some people, but I fucking loathe girl bands and boy bands. I hate constructive bands. It's quite homophobic. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's not. I don't like artificially constructed bands. Yeah, fair enough. Bands are put together by a producer or a marketeer rather than by an artistic yearning to express oneself. Uh, I mean, obviously, I, I love pop music, as we borne out by um, my choice for our present shortly. But um, Like I say, music is such a personal thing. Just because I don't like something doesn't mean it doesn't have merit, mm. but I don't want to listen to it. Right. Mm. I mean, the, the crap my next door neighbor's kid listens to, that has no merit. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I think there was a point where we could have got quite easily into Dick's choice. We can choice just get into it now. The... Go on. Well, well, yeah. Without a segue. <laughs> so, my, so Leslie's picked, uh, picked an album from that year. I've also picked an album. It is Like a Prayer. The fourth <laughs> studio album from Madonna. The reason why I picked this album was because I came to Madonna's music in my late teens. Like, obviously, I'd always been aware of it growing up, like, in the 90s. But I think kind of becoming aware of myself. And obviously, like, when I was kind of like a young teenager, you know, Madonna was still very much producing music, but was still very mainstream you know like she was still someone you would see like on the music channels and everything so I think she released her album music when I was around 12 13 I remember confessions on a dance floor came out when I first lived in Japan I got hold of a copy of the immaculate collection I think I might have bought it from a HMB or something and I think like a prayer is the song is probably my favorite Madonna song like in terms of it's like complexity as a piece of music in terms of the like emotional resonance in it you know the lyrics are like very kind of like evocative and for like gospel singers and stuff and the kind of like organs I've, I've always absolutely loved that song I used to love singing it at karaoke in Japan so yeah I, that song came out in 1989 it was obviously the lead single from the album I mean that album's interesting because it was kind of Madonna's move away from kind of like straight up pop music into something that would potentially appeal to a more adult market. And uh, she explores kind of like various themes on it. There's a song called Oh Father, which is about her relationship with her father. It also features Express Yourself, which obviously like is quite a huge queer anthem. And obviously uh, Lady Gaga, people thought that she was kind of borrowing heavily from Express Yourself when she released uh, Born This Way. That's the album that I've chosen. I was listening to it earlier today. There's Obviously, a lot of it sounds very much like, OK, this is late 80s pop music. <laughs> Some of the songs, you know, like Cherish, like I said, Like a Prayer, Express Yourself, I think have held up as kind of solid pop songs. And like I said, I think Like a Prayer is probably one of the best songs of her career. That's my TED talk. I'm happy to take any questions. I think it's really interesting that if we were both adults in the 90s, we wouldn't have known each other, even if we were in the same geographical place, which is Weird, because we're such lovely friends now, but I think if we'd known each other in the mid-90s, I think our tastes were so different that we wouldn't have even crossed paths, which is a bit of a shame. But we have now, so that's the important thing. Well, we might have done if we'd both been adults on the kind of, like, New York comedy scene in the 90s, which I can kind of picture, like us two in, like, smoky bars. I will add as well, Dick and I have got completely different music tastes and we're... Oh, no, it's not just a music thing. But <laughs> but just, it's interesting you say that, though, like, if we'd both been on the, the New York scene. I was thinking earlier today about doing this this recording and thinking about the person I was in 1989 and the person I am now. And it's it's weird. And this is going to sound a bit, hmm, but I think the person I am now, which is a happy person who's learned in the last few years to express myself as a comedian, which is the first creative venture I've ever been any good at at all. And the jury's still out on that, but I'm enjoying it anyway. And I'm enjoying some level of success. But the person I am now is the person I think maybe I could have been if I'd had a halfway decent foundation to get started with. Mm. And I think it took me all these years and all these different kind of 
seismic life changes. I've moved to a different country. I've been married and divorced, and now I'm in a lovely long-term civil partnership, and it's great. And I'm, I'm a happy person, and I'm a confident person now. And I think if I had had, not better start, because a lot of the things that happened when I was a kid were unavoidable and wasn't anyone's fault or anything, and I don't want to point a finger, but I think if I'd had a stronger foundation, I could have been Mm-mm. the person I am now decades sooner. But saying that, I wouldn't yeah. change it because I'm happy now. All we've got is the reality that we've got. But I, I really relate to what you're saying. I mean, I started doing stand-up when I was 30. And I just don't think I could have done it any earlier. I think I could have done it, you know, in my early 20s. But I don't think I would have had... I, I wouldn't... I mean, I can barely cope with some of the knockbacks and rejections we get now as stand-ups. Do you know what I mean? Like, as, I do know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, I had quite a difficult adolescence. In a lot of ways, I think my 20s was me kind of coming to terms with, like, my adolescence and kind of trying to, like, find peace with myself. And I just think if I'd thrown stand-up into that mix, I couldn't have dealt with like I said you know like the knockbacks and the disappointments I think you do experience in stand-up yeah but at the same time you know I wouldn't change anything because well you can't change anything that's that's the point you know (laughs) what I mean you've literally got one life but I I say that a lot to like younger comedians you know like I couldn't have done it at your age there's some brilliant younger comics out there at the minute George Tothill, Will Owen, love them (laughs) Uh, making mad moves on the comedy scene I didn't have the emotional vocabulary if if I can say it that way I wouldn't have been able to put myself out there and I don't I you know my my stuff's not incredibly revealing about who I am necessarily I'm just but it's still revealing the fact you're doing it yeah and there's so much more I want to delve into and learn and and find ways to express and sometimes I sit here and I look at myself and I'm, I'm I'm 50 years old and I'm like I've just kind of realized who I am in the last few years and very much like Madonna (laughs) you are the only person in the history of the world who would ever draw a comparison between me and Madonna and I love you for it well a minute ago you were talking about expressing yourself and I was about to launch into a rendition of (laughs) express yourself dragging this back to Madonna briefly I was going to say when I looked up like a prayer I was shocked by how massive the backlash was to it. Apparently, it was a whole thing, a whole thing that would make a lot of the daily Twitter storms that go on look quite small. The Pope denounced her. You don't often get that. The vaguest recollection of that. The context of this is that she did a deal with Pepsi. Pepsi were going to sponsor her next album or something. But the deal with Pepsi was that she would do an advert for Pepsi and then she could do her video and they'd fund it, basically. Or something like that. The advert for Pepsi went out during the Cosby show. I think that dates it. Oh, God. (laughs) The Cosby show was the most popular TV show at the time. The advert went out to 250 million people with Madonna in it. And the next day, the next day, she debuted the Like a Prayer video on MTV, (laughs) which is, as you know, you know, stigmata and very charged like racial politics and very charged like religious symbolism. And the backlash was immediate and enormous. And Pepsi dropped to like a hot stone. Yeah, They dropped her so quickly that they were like, keep the advance, just don't talk about it. <laughs> but it's just so like, the, I don't know, the idea of it, like, you know, depiction of a black Jesus could cause such... I mean, it wasn't just It was that, a sexy but... black Jesus. <laughs> it was a very intense sort of video, and it uh, upset a lot of people. And uh, it, did, it did very well for her. And there has been some suggestion that this was the plan. <laughs> and um, the wiki says, and I quote, supposedly this was the first instance of the concept of free publicity. Oh, well, that's not true. <laughs> I think it's an interesting echo to things that happen today. They drum up negativity about something. Yeah, but at the same time, like I think it's easy to say, like, oh yeah, she was doing it for negative. She was doing it for negative publicity and stuff. But I think Madonna. Look, I'm not gonna like lionize her and make her out like she's something she's not. Like she is clearly like you know a hugely skilled self publicist. 
you know, is able to reinvent herself, who's able to know what is going to be shocking. You know, I think probably over the last few years, she's kind of like lost her way a bit on that. But I mean, you know, in terms of a, you know, a music video like that, of you know, a woman kind of like showing herself as both sexual and strong, which she does in that video. And, you know, the fact that she's like cavorting with a black Jesus when Jesus was definitely... Jesus was at least heavily melanated. That was the subtitle for the album, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Jesus was not white <laughs> no. in the way that we've always depicted him in the West. Mm. I would say that certainly metal bands were doing the whole like, let's piss off the religious people and get some free publicity shtick. Because <laughs> it was uh, yeah. Iron Maiden that had all of their, they had uh, huge CD it, burnings. Again, like, I don't think it, Madonna is just like, let's piss off religion and like sell a load of records. Like w- when you think about the way that the LGBT community is, you know, like empathised with her over the years and like, you know, people do see her as someone who is like challenging kind of. Um, yeah, because I went in a bit of a deep dive about her career after afterwards when I was looking into this and I was like she's very singular as a character and she's very like chameleonic and I think you know that appeals to both artistic and kind of pop culture mainstream communities like Lady Gaga does I suppose where she's kind of mixing these two streams of kind of self-expression and you know mass market appeal. Let's put it in context right because I as you know I'm not a fan of Madonna's music I can respect her incredible instincts on publicity and PR. She's always had that. But she was already, from the moment that was like mid-80s, that was when suddenly she was everywhere. I don't know if it was her first thing, but it was when Mm. she was suddenly ubiquitous. She was was Mm. already tinkering with people's perception about sexuality and about what women could do and get away with and get away with, uh, which is a very misogynistic term but that was the reality of the 80s it was a misogynistic time and anyone who tries to tell you differently doesn't have a womb she wasn't the first person to come a cropper from the pope i mean Sinead o'connor came before her and she was already laying that groundwork clearly i think interestingly that might have come in the 90s when Sinead o'connor tore up a picture of the pope i just love the idea of coming a cropper from the pope <laughs> <laughs> Well, and also, I mean, it, it's funny because America being America, America likes to think of itself as um, as a separation of church and state kind of country. But there's a lot of very religious people there. I mean, it's got in God we trust on the currency. <laughs> Shall we move on to the games? Comings and goings. Okay, so go. So we'll start off with goings. Okay, who died in 1989? Okay, well, do you want to guess? It was, uh, it was uh, I'll give you a clue. It was an artist. Salvador Dali. Yeah. What? Straight away. Yeah, Salvador nice. Dali died in uh, <laughs> 1989. He led a really long life. I mean, he was born in 1904. Yeah. So, yeah. Did he not um, die in a house fire? Am I misremembering that? Oh, I don't know. I didn't read that deeply into the Wikipedia. <laughs> but um, he died in um, the town where he uh, was born. It was a town in Catalonia. Mm. I've always I've always enjoyed Salvador Dali's <laughs> artwork from what I've seen of it. I'm not a huge art connoisseur. There I mean... was another fine artist who toyed with Christian symbolism. So much like Madonna... After him, you know, in fact, in many ways, was he passing on the torch? <laughs> it feels like his artwork got more religious, like the older he, he got. He did a big, giant Christ on a cross in, I think, the yes, 60s. He did. Above water. Yeah. yeah, that is an amazing piece of art. It's huge. I only really know, yeah. like, his persistence of memory. Like, that's the thing. Persistence of memory. I was yeah. hoping you were going to say the mountain clocks, and then I could have corrected you and said it's the persistence of memory. Oh. In all my many years, I've done a lot of pub quizzes, and that one comes up. <laughs> because everyone thinks it's either called melting clocks or the persistence of time. Well, the persistence of time is the Anthrax album. Oh, that's a great album. 
Salvador <laughs> Dali left us in 1989, but who joined us? Who was born in 1989? I'll give. Well, you might not get who this is actually. Okay. Um, there's a, there was the obvious one, but I was like, shall I go for like Taylor Swift? But <laughs> was it Taylor? Oh, because she's got no, the album. Yeah, right? she's got the album 1989, okay, and we right. could have done a kind of like, oh, Madonna, oh, Taylor Swift thing. Okay. But I. I shunned Taylor. <laughs> okay. okay, I'll give you a clue. It's a British sports person born in 1989. Okay. A sports person turned reality. What? Well, not reality TV. Yeah, I guess it is reality TV. Yeah. He okay. won Strictly. Um, oh, well, few of them. I have no idea. I, Strictly is one thing I do know a little bit about. When we say sports person, is it a team sport? Or... Oh, both actually, just team and individual. And he won. Oh, individual football. No. Is he a gymnast? Yes. Yeah. 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 Is it Lewis? Um. Louis, Louis... Louis Smith. Yeah. Him. Yeah. 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 He was. He was Brilliant. born in 1989. He's from Peterborough, oh, wow. I believe. I would have thought he was younger than that. You know. No. Yeah. 1989, and he's uh, oh. from Peterborough. Silver medalist. In London 2012 and then Rio 2016 as well. Oh, wow. both, and a fa- fabulous dancer. Both on the pommel horse. Yeah, champion <laughs> of Strictly 2012. Wait, Strictly 2012? So he was on the Olympics yeah. and he won Strictly in one year. He had a good year. Wow. It's been downhill for him, surely. <laughs> what else? He was in the mask. Dancer, he won that as well. Okay. He's like the masked singer, but they're wearing masks. He's uh, he's a very good looking man. Yes, he is. He's one of the first kind of sports people I remember. I mean, I'm sure there were others like Freddie Lindenberg and stuff in the noughties, but like he was very like you know posing on like Attitude magazine and like stuff like that. And I think he knew he, he was attractive, and I think we all knew it as well. And um, <laughs> we were made very but aware. He used of it. it for good. Yeah, he, used, he definitely used it for good. And yeah. I'm and I'm I'm saying it's it's a brilliant <laughs> thing. Uh, I'm trying to say it in a way that doesn't sound lecherous or like. No, I, because um, there are people who could. You could have had somebody like Lewis Smith who looked like him and who had his talent and was just self-serving. And he doesn't come across that way. So I think I know what you mean. Like, he's quite, it seems like, he's and humble. we can't know celebrities, but he seems like a good guy, like somebody you'd want to know. Yeah. As well as being quite stunning when he's <laughs> He was really sweet yeah, when he was he really Australia, was. wasn't he? Yeah, he does, he does other <laughs> stuff now. Not pantomime. But yeah, Louis Smith was born in 1989. Wow. Thank Brilliant. goodness he was. That might be the first time that we've got both, actually. I'll have to check on that. But that was good. What was the biggest selling single of 1989? Okay, um, who's going to guess? What do you think? It, was it like a prayer? No. Oh, so this is the UK chart. Yes, yeah, yeah, UK chart. Do you think Leslie will get it? I think it was a hit in America. Well, maybe might have been quite European, actually. Oh, was it Ace... Ace of uh, what are they called? Ace to bait. No, what are Ace they called? Base. Ace of base. No, it wasn't. But you're in a similar ballpark. Was it? So was it? It was a housey trancey song. Supposedly, this fused Italo disco with Chicago house. What? Did it have lyrics? It did. Very few lyrics. Not many of them. I'm unlikely to get this because I don't it's, know. It's not no limits. No, but you are in. You are very much in the ballpark. Is it right on time. It is Ride on Time by Blake That was Box. the biggest selling single of 1989. Somebody, it was huge. Sorry, boys. I don't know the song. Would one of you... Because you're right on time. Right on time. Because you're right on time. <laughs> nope. You just walk right in. Walk, walk, walk right in. That was very well performed. The original sample was ripped off from Love Sensation by Lolita Holloway. And this was a big song in the early 80s in America. And I think they didn't uh, ask for permission. (laughs) So they got sued. And so they had to re-record it with Heather Small, who later joined N people. Um, But when they did it on TV, they used a model. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Model to mime. And it was a bit of a drama. And the Italian guys who did it were a bit like, in Italy, we mime all the time. 
<laughs> around that time was the whole Millie Vanilli thing, wasn't it? When yes, I feel like that was a year or two later. I might be wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was definitely an outrage that they were miming in the song. But yeah, the song. <laughs> Did the Pope uh, get involved? The Pope was otherwise <laughs> occupied. They scurried up the passageway with like a note, and they say, "Pope, Pope, there's something." He's like, "I'm focusing on Madonna. Fuck off." <laughs> Okay, that is that. Thank you very much, Leslie, yeah, for coming along. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Did you guys enjoy my year? Yeah, yeah. I think it was a great year. Lovely there was lots year. to talk about. And I learned a lot about particularly the Berlin Wall and a little bit about Trent Reznor. Cool. That's the important Yeah, I'm, g- I'm going to listen to Nine Inch Nails. I literally couldn't even name a song. <clears throat> I found out when they did it. Go on. When they did a reissue of it, they they did he did a cover of I think Get Down Make Love by Queen, and I'm like I'll listen to that, yeah, and it was pretty good. He's got <laughs> they've got a lot. I say they. He's got a lot of good stuff. But if you had to pick one mm. song, if I had to only listen to one Nine Nails song, it would be Sin. Mm. Every Sin. time I'll check it out. But the one that you're most likely to have heard before was Head Like a Hole. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Or is that from a 1989 album? Yeah, it is. I think. Or I want to fuck you like an animal. That was a that was a big one. I'm not going to sing it because I can't sing, but I think you'd know it if you heard it. And then there's also the song "Hurt," which is beautiful, mm. and which um, what's his face? Johnny, Johnny Cash, Cash, yeah, covered it. Did a cover of it. That is, it will make you cry if you've got a heart. Yeah, I've got one of those. <laughs> which uh, Dick? Do you want to talk about what you've got coming up? Yes, I do. I've got a show. It is Dick Denham, Big Dick Energy. It's a work in progress. I'm doing it very well. I say various two venues in London, and I'm going to be taking it to Leicester Comedy Festival in February on the. Nice. I think it's the fifteenth and sixteenth of February. So, um, yeah, if you're in the East Midlands and you want some kind of Cam, queer, surreal, comedy, uh, do come along. Wonderful. That sounds brilliant. Like, I, I can't wait to see it. I'm excited for you. Leslie, what have you got to promote? Well, by the time this goes out, my, my big exciting thing will have already happened, but I'm emceeing a charity gig at the Comedy Store, Ooh. which is very exciting. But also, myself and my other comedy buddy, Nick Kirk, are doing our first attempt at a split bill fringe show at Favish and Fringe. So that's exciting. And watch this space because we're going to be looking to take that to Edinburgh next summer. Nice. Very good. And possibly other venues in between times um and that at the moment is being called sofa so funny so fringe because of course the show i I run is called sofa so funny now over a year old Um, and that's on twice a month so follow us on all the socials and come see us and you're likely to see dick denema gracing our stage being brilliantly funny as always fantastic hopefully And Owen, what, what is there anything you'd like to share with our listeners? About uh, as always, got? this is going for the different side of comics. I run a comics collective called Comic Creatives UK. We are there to support and provide information to people who create comics in the UK. Uh, we do live chats. We do twice yearly anthologies and we give critiques all the time. So come along and get involved with that. We can be found on Comic Creatives UK pretty much everywhere. That's it. Cool. Great. We are done. Bye, everyone. I mean, as in bye to our listeners. (laughs) Bye, listeners. Bye, listeners. (laughs)